Welcome back to the Clinical Athlete Podcast. If you're not familiar with Clinical Athlete, we're a network of healthcare providers, students, coaches, and trainers who specialize in the management of athletes. You can find your nearest Clinical Athlete provider at clinicalathlete.com. We also have a forum where we discuss and share ideas and resources related to sports med, athlete rehab, and performance. To join the forum or for potential listing on the Clinical Athlete Directory and for all upcoming seminars, webinars, and events, details can be found on the website. This podcast can also be found on the website along with YouTube, iTunes, Google Play, Spotify, Stitcher, and iHeartRadio. My name is Quinn Hennick. I'm a doctor of physical therapy in Orange County, California at Clinical Athlete Newport. I'm joined by Jared Maynard, who is the Clinical Athlete Continuing Education Director and Coordinator and a physiotherapist at King Physiotherapist and Foot Clinic in Ontario, Canada, He is a certified strength and conditioning specialist and runs an online powerlifting coaching company and is a competitive powerlifter himself. What's up, Jared? Not much, man. Just chilling, literally, because we got more snow on the weekend. Are you serious? Oh, yeah. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) My God, man. It was was 70 degrees here in Southern California. I mean, Uh, it's no explosion of the butterfly population like you got to deal with over there. Yeah. Listen, we've talked about the mudslides and the earthquakes and the wildfires. We have our hazards. Yeah, yeah. Well, you didn't talk about the biggest one, which is the butterflies. Stop. You're trolling. <laughs> Greg, we've had a uh, we had a little bit of rain here in Southern California, so we had a butterfly. We had a wildflower boom and uh, an influx of butterflies. It was amazing and beautiful. Yeah, and everyone knows that. Jared's making fun <laughs> of it. No, no, I'm serious. We, uh, so, and, and our boy, John flag couldn't make the show. He's feeling a bit under the weather. Uh, but really, I think he just didn't like our guest. <laughs> <laughs> just kidding. John loves Fair you. So, no, he, he loves you. Speaking Bad of, okay, <laughs> we're super excited to welcome physiotherapist, chiropractor and strength and conditioning specialist, Greg Lehman onto the show. Greg, thanks so much for being on. Yeah. Thanks for having me. It's an honor. So for those who don't know, one of the courses that Greg teaches all over the world is called Reconciling Biomechanics with Pain Science. The title of the course encompasses the work that you put out really well. And so we wanted to get you on the show to talk specifically about lumbar spine biomechanics, when and how they matter, and with respect to the science of pain. But before we get into that, can you tell our six listeners a little bit more about yourself and what's led to these interests that you're so passionate about and ultimately to the pinnacle of your professional career now, which is being on the Clinical Athlete Podcast. Uh, yeah, thanks. Uh, <laughs> well, I'm like primarily a clinician. I'm teaching a lot more now than I ever have. But, you know, I was in clinical practice for 15 years as a Cairo and then I went back to school for physio. Uh, and before that, I, I did a master's in uh, spine biomechanics at, at Waterloo. But when I was at Waterloo, I was also a strength coach with the Laurier's basketball team. That's like the university down the road and then hockey team after that. So like I've always loved biomechanics, but um, and I still think it's really important. And that that's that was the thrust of the course is like uh, I think biomechanics is important. Let's not ignore it, but let's find another more valid way to utilize it with our patients and athletes. That's sort of the big idea there. And so I've always been interested in like the little questions and things that we say in the clinic that may or may not be supported. And I think so much of what I do is like, like I'm really on the fence with a lot of this stuff and I have my own doubts and I just like to share my doubts with everybody else so we can all commiserate together. And so that's like, like, and that's what we'll talk about. You'll see, like, I don't think we should have really strong opinions on some of the topics that we have really strong opinions on. You know, when, when you know the research well, you should feel a, a little confused and that's okay. And so like my goal was with creating the course was to find a way to navigate that doubt and, and still practice in like a healthy and, and useful manner with patients and athletes. We're all that's just it. swimming in an ocean of uncertainty. Yeah, it's okay. Yeah. You just got to navigate that. It's fine. Embrace the void. Embrace the void. And then what, what I find so neat is like once you go through like the complexity of the biomechanics and different sides of things, often when you come out, it's it's really simple advice from what we know. And I'm like, oh, why did we spend so much time talking about these issues when it's some of it's just common sense? And I, I still think that like all the debates that we have in practice, it really doesn't matter. Mm. You know, we're, 
when people who look very different and how they choose to do certain things, whether it's working with an athlete or someone in pain, they actually, you know, they're disagreeing about the little details. But what if you if you turn the sound off and just watched what they did, you'd be like, oh, they're really kind of similar, <laughs> but they just don't want to admit it. <laughs> it's also the difference with these these discussions typically refer to hypotheticals and and um, made up constructs that are we're looking at a kind of a snapshot in the moment or in the clinical setting when we're taking into account prior history, current status, future goals, the the background of the individual, you know, what they're dealing with at, at home, what we're able to get in during our clinic session, what they're able to do at home on their own there, you know, all these factors just encompass so much that make a discussion like that truly like a one-off discussion, damn near impossible. Um, and to, to provide some context to that type of, of thing, you've spoken many times regarding what seems to be, but is most likely a false dichotomy as most things are between the movement quote, movement quality model and the quote movement optimist model. You're more an advocate for the movement optimist model but can you speak a little bit about what that is and why you tend to advocate to that over alternatives? Yeah. So that I, I wouldn't even, I, first I would like challenge the term mo- movement quality. <laughs> I, I want to even uh, take that definition uh, away from the classic definition. So the, I mean, the classic way it's defined is the kinesiopathological model, which means like we have pain or injuries or future injuries when you move the kinesio when you move in such a way that's that's different from a proposed ideal and that ideal in general is like more being neutral uh, like alignment you know no scoliosis don't deviate you know not a lot of spine flexion you know that that sort of idea like that's the kinesio path model if you're running your knee shouldn't cave in if you squat your knee shouldn't cave in. You should minimize hip internal rotation. Your scapula shouldn't wing. It shouldn't shrug. You know, that, that that's the kinesiopath model. And some people would say, well, that's movement quality because that's how, how you how you should move. And I would contrast that with the movement optimism model, which is like all of those positions are okay to, to, to some extent. And it kind of depends on what your goals are and what your how well you can prepare yourself to get into those positions. So it's more like, and so me being pithy, like I say, movement preparation trumps movement quality, you know, that like how, how we move that you prepared to do something. So I think we've like freaked out over these biomechanical boogeymen and like we're ignoring the variables that are more important would be like, if you're going to deadlift, well, it doesn't matter what your technique is like. If you just jump in and start doing 12 sets five days per week with poor sleep and poor recovery, you know, that's just, that's the, no one would do that, but let's say you have some idiot that does. Someone's done it. Sure. I'm sure. Someone's yeah. It's my rock climbing. <laughs> would you say on the other side, there are patterns that emerge when you're exposed to a repeated stressor? Let's just say lifting. There's a there's an economy of movement that emerges over time for an individual and and we can maybe coach somebody into that economy of movement or, or oh. Yeah, totally. I mean, we we have still have a huge role for performance specialists and strength coaches and technique advocates. But you you nailed you like nailed it. You said it's about economy and about efficiency and performance. And so maybe like biomechanics and how we move is probably more important for performance than for pain and injury would be the argument, right? And so, uh, and, but I'm still, I'm still again on the fence. I'm sure I, I do have instances where I would say like how we move is important even for injuries as well. Like I boulder or rock climb and when I jump off of stuff, it, it's certainly better to land on my feet than to land on my hands. You know, or, or and there's probably a better way to land, like a lot of motion through my knees and my hips and my spine, rather than landing stiff, you know, and not and not absorbing that. So there, you know what I mean? Like there's still there's there's still better ways to to move, and it's not totally irrelevant. But the things that we've been harping on for years, those are the things where I'm like, ah, 
they might be important important at the extremes like it's if it looks pornographic like you know the <laughs> supreme court definition of pornography it's hard to define but you know it when you see it and so like maybe if you have like pornographic movement patterns you're more likely <laughs> They get injured. So I don't know if that they've come up with an FMS subscore on the porno- pornography <laughs> scale. Great Cooks listening and no doubt. <laughs> oh, yeah, yeah. Yeah, like, yeah, yeah. That's <laughs> the new version. We are coming out. It's a, it's the pornographic capacity and the <laughs> pornographic quality. And we thought of it first. Cost four hundred bucks. We just we just lost half our listeners. <laughs> no, but it's not, not the first time we've talked about the FMS on this show. Yeah. And and then the other the follow up question is if you if you see that type of egregious movement can you even do anything about it you know again it comes down to the context of the situation or or do you need to do you feel that there are adaptable ceilings because I know yeah. with with the movement optimist model it's about let's let's embrace adaptability let's embrace uncertainty yeah. but embrace adaptability and I don't think we give. We don't give our bodies enough credit for what they can absorb and adapt to. With that said, and I think you kind of touched on it a little bit, do you feel that there are still kind of adaptability ceilings for certain structures or within certain patterns? Uh, absolutely. You know, and that's that, that's what we need to know more about is like how, how different tissues and people respond to load and and when we need to back off and when we need to go go ahead. Like I used to run a lot. And I would get around, you know, 80, 90 kilometers a week, you know, 50, 60 miles. And that, that was, that was trouble. I'd start to, to break down, uh, there or like with gymnasts, you know, so actually if we, let's, re, re, um, have another way of looking at movement quality here. I call movement quality having a lot of options to do the same task. That's what I like. When I see a good mover, I went, it was in Florida teaching with Brian Bushette. And he's a, he has a CrossFit box and gym and, and he could just move however he likes. He has like beautiful classic technique, but then he could do, he could move any other way. And so to me, I'm like, if, if, if we do have an adaptability ceiling and you want to keep training, then ideally you can start moving a different way and unloading those tissues as they recover and keep doing other stuff that, that kind of makes sense to me. That's the new movement quality to me is like keep training number of different ways and then keep adapting and spare some tissues, give them a break and load other ones and, and build up. Right. That's my bias. It's like, I I definitely think there's a limit to adaptability. So train differently sometimes pretty groundbreaking. eh? (laughs) Yeah. Sorry. Well, the have options for the same task is I think defined movement variability is, is that's like by definition. I think I've seen that in literature several times You have, have several options to perform the same task, but you're, and it's that finite window of your variability is constrained when you first learn a task, but there's, it's like a bell curve. It's like too much noise, too much variability. You can't quite hone in on the skill too little. And the system is too rigid, but there's that kind of Goldilocks zone that comes with just deliberate practice and, and learning, um, and, and time enough yeah. time to adapt if we're talking about the lumbar spine in particular because it's still it's still taught you know the as far as spinal flexion being an injury mechanism and that as a standalone is taken to then we shouldn't flex our spine um, or go spinal flexion is bad with the adaptability concept in mind do our what your thoughts on 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 teaching lifting technique from somebody who's not necessarily a lifter. So we're, I think we're all on the same page that biomechanics matters from a performance perspective, lever, uh, force transfer, all these things. We start talking about injury risk and potential sensitization, maybe over time with some positions versus others. If you were, if you had a newbie in front of you who had a job to lift things, what is your approach in regards to spinal position? long-winded question yeah uh, no no i i would say don't don't worry about it work on figuring out the way that you can lift the most weight the easiest and that's where i think coaches are excellent that's why like good strength coaches and i'm not one of them uh i'm more into like programming and stuff like that i'm not not i'm not like a power lifting coach that's for sure where a good coach will look at the person and be like Okay, these are your options on how to lift. And that's why it's so interesting when you see good lifters, how there's so much variability 
right? And some of it's anatomically based and all that. So I would assume someone who has a job when they have to lift over and over, uh, teach them, they're probably still going to use their hips and, you know, get their ass back and down and things like that. But don't think about the spine flexion. You'll use their, your spine position to get the rest of your body parts in the, in the best position to produce force. And then I would say with our occupational athletes side like that, probably the more important thing, and we see this in the literature, is that they're prepared to lift. That's why like on the Cochrane reviews, you know, they have interventions where they go and teach people how to lift to do their job. Those things in general don't seem to decrease low back pain. But when they go in and add exercise programs and build up these people and their resiliency, that seems to decrease pain. Right. So it's not the technique, it's the preparation that maybe seems more important. Yeah. There's, that's my thoughts on the, on the, the occupational lifter. If that, that way you meant like someone has a job has to lift shit. Absolutely. Yeah. 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 yeah, yeah. That's, that's, that's the thrust. Don't worry about the spine position. Figure out, get the spine position in the position that allows you to produce the most force, the most easily, with the most ease. Is it kind of one of those things where you can find a starting point, like the traditional, just kind of flat, just kind of pat people on the back and just tight, just stay right here, keep that, uh, keep that where it is or something like that, just in the beginning. Yeah. And then let the, let the patterns emerge from there. Just take a kind of take a step back, see what they do over time with increased load or increased stress, speed, whatever it is, or volume, something like that. If things start to become, deficient, inefficient, something, then, then you, then, then you step in, intervene, something simple, step back, let the patterns emerge. And, you know, that's a process of, of preparation right there. But it sounds like your point is you're not, you're not putting them in the optimal position because there may not actually be one to begin with. And you're also not worried about necessarily keeping them there in this, in this rigid pattern over time. Yeah. I mean, like it, it, you're not going to, if, if you're going to lift the most weight from the floor, no one's going to choose, you're, you're not going to Jefferson curl, right? So you, although the spine's fully flexed in those positions, there are, there are biomechanics that are important to produce more force. You want, you want to get your hips back and down and all of those things, but just don't get caught up on the spine position. That's probably not important, but I would say like guys like you that work with athletes to produce more, more force. I'm not sure everything is like, I don't know these terms, the self-organizing system. I don't know if it's just fully emergent that people can figure it out on their own. Mm -hmm. Just me learning gymnastics as an adult, right? I can watch as many YouTube videos as I want. It helps. But I was like today, I really needed a coach who was helping me figure out a way to do a certain movement. It wasn't coming on my own, right? So I'm not always sure that it's like self-emergent or that that, that the best way to do it, we, we all figure it out. So there's still a role for coaching and physios and all that stuff. Totally. If a student, if a student reads one of your articles, watches one of your videos, listens to you talk here, maybe even goes to your course and comes away with the notion that biomechanics now don't matter. Um, what's being, what's the biggest thing that's being misinterpreted? Where does the pendulum swing yeah. too far? Yeah. If, if, if they come up with that conclusion, then I, then I've done it wrong. <laughs> That's the, so that, that's my fault then. Uh, or they probably, uh, if that ever, I, I have had people do that, but then they uh, haven't really read my stuff. That's, that's the thing. Or they have a preconceived idea of what, what I'm going to say. And then they just skim my blogs and, and stuff like that. So if they come up with that, what they're missing here is what I'm saying is the biomechanics that you think matters, th- those ones don't matter, but there are other ones that are important. That's when, that's what I'm saying. Like I, I find it's the biomechanical research itself that contradicts the status quo of the biomechanical like ideas that we have out there. I think if you know the biomechanics really well, you then you start questioning what so many people talk or teach and accept. So I, I'm saying biomechanics are important, just not the ones that you think are important. <laughs> it also sounds like you're saying that it's it's very context dependent too. So it's hard to pass or have these overarching statements that, that hold true for everybody in every situation, because it's probably going to vary quite a lot. Yeah, it's true. But, and I was, I agree with uh, Stu McMillan who, who he doesn't like the term. It depends. You know, okay. He always says that. And he's like, fine, it depends. So give me the situation where, why it does depend. And so I always try to do that. Like with, with the shoulder, I don't really care too much about scapular position and scapular kinematics. But at the same time, 
I think those um, that theory led us to training the scapulothoracic muscles and the rotator cuff, and that seems to be helpful for a lot of shoulder pain, but it doesn't change scapular position. So to me, the mechanics don't matter, but mm-hmm. the training impetus to train that whole region and train comprehensively, that was a re- that's a really good thing to do. So the mechanics are still important here, just not how you move is the most important. Or if it hurts to do something, well, dumbass, don't do that. Like change your mechanics temporarily. And then if you're open to the move, the movement optimism idea, then you can start doing weird things or different things with your shoulder, keep moving, it desensitize, and then you can go back to moving however you like. I've also heard you say, sorry, go ahead. No, no, that's it. I also heard you say that if, if something hurts, another option is persist and, you know, see if you can adapt to that. Yeah. That's super neat. eh? And like, it's groundbreaking. and but you know what? People have done that forever. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. Like you just kind of work around. But you know, with you know the joke. You know the people that do that. We don't. The they don't, don't come and see us. That's right. Right? Yeah, exactly. Like, there's plenty of people solve their pain problems that way. Mm-hmm. Uh, yeah, I, I love that idea of like, okay, find the thing that hurts, and the assumption is you haven't adapted to that. Mm-hmm. Back it off. Find the right dosage. You know treat with the poison and then adapt to it. It's movement homeopathy. That's, that's what it is. That's my new joke. That's my new one. I'm running with it. I need a t-shirt. Uh, right? Like that, that's what we do all the time. What are you having trouble doing? Okay, do that, but do less. Yeah, yeah, for sure. It's true. I had a patient today, like yeah. her, the inside of her ankle hurts when she runs, right? It flared up, but she did a 20K run at speed the other day. So it's, it's not too bad, mm. but I'm not going to change her running technique. I've known her for years. She's not changing it. She's not tolerating those movements. All right. Well, these are some of the exercises you're going to do. You know, the thing that kind of hurts. Right. That's that's what we did. Well, in two weeks, she's doing other stuff initially, and then she'll do that. Right. Yeah. In those, ca- in those cases, do you find you get the question that, hey, what should I do? I'm having this issue. What should I do? Do you ever find yourself rebutting that to say, do you need to do anything? Would you be okay with not doing anything to address this issue and just letting it be? You ran 20 K yeah. that happened. Your, your body's now telling you this, but it will likely not be telling you that if you just give it a little bit of time, do you have those conversations with people? Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And they often will email me and they'll, they'll have that conversation with themselves and they'll like, so I know you're going to tell me to <laughs> back off a little bit of running, but still do some. And they always write that. So I know I'm doing my job because they're, they just don't fully have as much confidence in themselves as they need to. Uh, so yeah, that, that's a, that's a really neat concept of therapy. Like it's like a tendinopathy. We always think you got to load up that tendon hard progressively and it'll like heal or it'll build new collagen and it'll be able to tolerate the tendinosis. And what we've never really had research studies on is like, well, what if we just back off of what they're doing and they love to do and then use like say it's sprinting or running and then use the sprinting and running as the intervention to catalyze healing, you know, back it off a little bit and then slowly start sprinting and running again and change up those variables to stimulate the person to adapt. We never have studies on that, except in the hamstring, sorry, hamstring strains. It's the, what do they say? It's like, it's sprinting is the vaccine, right? Mm. You you tear your hamstring hamstring sprinting, so we're going to rehab you with sprinting, right? Well, it's a dose response, right? Yeah. So that's where mechanics matters but it's not always the quality or how someone moves. It's like how, how much they're moving. Okay. Do you, do you tear that at all? So we take the sprinting comment. We're getting way far afield for lumbar spine, but that's kind of yeah, like, yeah, yeah flex, <laughs> yeah. flex a little bit. You can't, you not flex. It's going to happen, but whatever makes you feel strongest and most comfortable done. Yeah. Um, there you go. With sprinting is way cooler with, with something like sprinting. Do you, do you tier your approach in what you recommend in that? So dosage is kind of, kind of king. It doesn't really matter how you're moving. If you do a hundred sprints at RPE 10 constantly, then, you know, it doesn't matter how, how you're moving. That's going to supersede biomechanics, just, just dosage, just workload alone. There can be that argument. But within that, if we modify dosage, there are technical aspects of sprinting. Yeah. That, that can, that can change strain on a tissue, like 
a sprint yeah. coach would say, if you're, you're reaching your, your base, your contact point is in front of your body. We get that contact point underneath your body a little bit more. So now you're kind of pulling in more of a mid range hamstring as opposed to that, you know, extension of the knee and hip at, at terminal stance, something like that. But that doesn't supersede the dosage. So we've got to get that right. Do you, do you have that type of mindset in regards to symptom modification or, or conversations? Or are you kind of just blending both? So it's, I shouldn't have brought up sprinting. Okay. <laughs> it's, it's actually the one where like, like sprinting and ACLs and stuff like that, where I think when tissue gets so like when the loads get so close to its failure uh, rate, that's where I actually think the mechanics probably matter more or they matter a little bit for the, because it's such a fluke occurrence anyway. If they're right at 99, 99.5% of their maximum threshold and they move a little bit funny on one stride, right, then they're in trouble. But if you if you probably worked on their sprinting technique and they had more of a buffer, then when they make that little error, maybe maybe they're safe. So that's where I wonder me- mechanics might might matter more. And sprinting is a good one. I think uh, ACL tears probably have the same idea. Like you definitely want to get strong in the quads and the hips and all that stuff. And that's probably enough to avoid the dynamic knee valgus. But maybe there's a few, like especially young girls, where you can train their movement patterns too to not to go into that dynamic knee valgus with no knee flexion. It's it's the knee flexion that's the issue. Like it's you can you can go into valgus all the time if your knee's flexed, then you won't tear your ACL. But so sure, I just went from the spine to hamstring to ACLs to, but it's it, it's it's all those it's those I wanted to, do, to 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 avoid the it depends things and give you some examples of where the mechanics pro- probably matter there. But again, going back to what you said, yeah, the dosage probably the more important thing. Do you find, do you feel that the, that same conversation would include lumbar discs in regards to spinal flexion and lifting? Or does the literature maybe not necessarily say that because there's so much spinal flexion that occurs naturally with some of these tasks? So my bias with the spine is the same as every joint. Like to me, it feels like we're end range of every joint is probably a little bit harder on everybody. Right. And, and like when I do back handsprings, Getting catching the ground with your hands fully, fully like your arms fully overhead. That's pretty hard, and it limits the number I can do. If I can get my chest over my my hips over my body more and not catch in that position, I can do more. So I think the spine's the same. Like teaching to avoid one hundred percent under heavy load is probably reasonable. But like with deadlifters, even really good ones, we know that they flex their spine seventy to eighty percent, right? And squatting is fifty to sixty. So. I mean, and I think that's fine, but it's just an end range that I would argue. I don't think repeated spine flexion like that is so bad when you're doing 60, 80%. It just doesn't seem like it's so horrible. And with deadlifting, how many times, how many reps would you guys do in a week if you're training hard? I know you never think of that. (laughs) It was the time under tension. (laughs) (laughs) How many reps? Uh, Gosh, something like... 20 to 50 probably yeah like who cares do you know yeah. what i mean like there's yeah. nothing yeah it's like, like and how many like with sprinting how many steps do you take in a week so much more like oh. 20 to 50 and then you have all that time to recover right mm-hmm. that i it just why are we worrying about this right one of the things that you brought up is the uncertainty with adaptability of these tissues like we don't actually have a great working model tendinopathy i mean Collagen renewal—that's a—that's a black hole because it, it doesn't—it yeah. doesn't appear to happen after a certain age. Or if it does, we don't have the tool sensitive enough to pick it up. It so, seems to happen so, on the outer core, right? More than the inner core, right? Yeah. So it's like, yeah, and, and not a lot, not a lot. No. Um, with and that's and that's been studied a lot. And are you aware of any similar studies on? lumbar discs in regards to their adaptive capability there are uh i can give you researchers and i've read their stuff and it's confusing researcher named jc lots been publishing for 20 years has like mouse mouse tail models and stuff like that they load up mouse tails and they so guess what if if you just compress a mouse tail for a month it starts to 
break down. <laughs> but if you compress it and relax and compress and relax, it it it, it uh, an, it's anabolic. It builds up, right? So load is good for the disc in a mouse if you work with mice. <laughs> but they never. That's just neutral. They never go into. I mean, the boogeyman has always been flexion. There's so many research groups that show in a cadaver model, if you repeatedly flex a disc, it will delaminate. But they do thousands and thousands of cycles. And and the the big issue, of course, is that it's dead tissue. And I would say, like, if you took a tendon out of a dead person and you pulled it thousands and thousands of times, it would crumble as well. But we would never say, don't run. That's the... Well, one of the arguments with the Jefferson curl, it was like to, in order to, to do the Jefferson curl is I'm, I'm creating adaptability. I'm giving myself a buffer. The, and if, if people aren't familiar with the Jefferson curl, it's, it's just imagine somebody, imagine the, the opposite of the deadlift that you would typically coach. Essentially, it's just full <laughs> from the top down, from yeah. the top down, segment by segment. You, you flex one segment at a time from your neck to your lower back. As, as far as your, as your tissues will allow. And you extend one segment at a time from your, from L5 all the way up to your neck until you're in the standing position again, rinse, repeat with, with, you know, progressive loads. Um, one of the Christopher Summers, one of the old USA gymnastics coaches anecdotally told me that he would have people do, uh, or he'd have his athletes progress over the course of a couple of years. Jefferson curls holding a, a barbell with body weight for sets of 10 with and standing on a box. And these gymnasts are, they have a lot of range of motion. And so, you know, their, their face is basically at their toes in a Jefferson curl position, holding a barbell with their body weight. And they're doing these things for multiple sets. Then the argument was we're giving them that buffer. And these are gymnasts, mind you, again, what's, what's the cohort that you're talking about? Well, we're giving your tissues a buffer so that if you are subjected to a certain position, you will have been prepared for it. The, but we don't, but what you're saying is we don't necessarily know. We're not, we're not doing longitudinal studies on the tissues to know what adaptations are occurring really. No. And it's actually, yeah, we just don't know how adaptable the disc is. Right. And like, we, we don't even really know if the wear and tear hypothesis is supported. There's a number of researchers who have said, like, I, I believe in like using load to catalyze tissue, positive tissue adaptations. And I like to think that that can happen with the disc too. But I mean, if I'm pretty honest in the, in the literature, it's more like it, your disc is going to change just based on your genetics, right? There's really not much that you can do, right? And the tendon stuff kind of supports a little bit of that as well, you know? And so, but, but in, interesting, this, this is, I've heard, I was talking to, uh, oh my God, what's his name? Dave Tilly. He's a gymnastics coach. Yep. Uh, and, and I was asking him about this idea that, you know, if you do Jefferson curls or something, people say that will cause the disc to elongate. Like the fibers will be like more flexible and allow you to have mobility, right? That, that's sort of the idea. And, but if you do deadlifts, it'll stiffen up the fibers. But what's interesting, and this is like a property of all connective tissue, this might surprise you guys and your readers or listeners can, can go check this out is that we're getting to a, a, just an idea here. I know of no research that, that shows that you can actually lengthen connective tissue besides pregnancy. Do, hold on here. This is, this is why when, if, when you strength train, we'll, we'll talk about tendons for a second. When you strength train, so the muscles are contracting and what are they doing to the tendon? They're pulling on mm-hmm. it, right? And so the tendon undergoes about four and a half to 6% strain if you're pulling around 80 to 90% of your max. So the tendon stretches and you hold it for a bit and then it relaxes. It's a spring. And if you do that, you know, every day or three times a week, as you pull on that tendon, meaning stretch it, it gets thicker a little bit and it gets stiffer, meaning the material properties of the tendon change. So does that make sense? The tendon becomes stiffer. Now, now imagine you're doing a stretch, right? A passive, boring old stretch. What are you doing to the tendon? Pulling on it. You're pulling on it. What does the tendon undergo? Strain, like probably less than an isometric contraction, but it undergoes strain. Why would it lengthen now? 
Whereas before, when we pulled on it, it stiffened up. Do you know what right. I mean? Like it, yeah. uh, so I'm sharing my doubt with all of your listeners here because I do, I cannot. I found one paper that shows it get less stiff with mm-hmm. stretching, but it actually wasn't stretching; it's dynamic stretching, not acute, not not static stuff. There's surprisingly no literature showing how we can stretch tissue. So, taking that tendon model to the disc, I don't see how we can lengthen, like make a disc more pliable. It seems like we can only make it stronger and stiffer, which which would support what you said about that gymnastics coach doing those positions, right? It's not the and it's not even the disc that resists flexion. It's all the other passive tissues. You know, the disc. If you go to one hundred percent flexion or ninety percent, the disc is only contributing ninety five percent of the passive. Doesn't matter. But the passive extensor moments are. It's hard, it doesn't get loaded a lot. You got to go like way beyond like what the whole system can handle before you really start pulling on the disc. If, if, you, if you want the research here, it's Patricia Dolan, and this stuff is 25 years old. So I, I don't actually know that. I think you can just stiffen up a disc. I don't know how we would ever lengthen it. That would support the idea of the Jaffrinster curl, but I don't think it's a really good exercise to do anyway. <laughs> <laughs> the, the, the connected tissue conversation is interesting, and now you don't know if it's a conversation of what's happening to the actual collagen or the matrix because yeah. when I when I dive into the tendon literature, to your point, the there's a bomb, uh, yeah, 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 bomb, the yeah, bomb the review in 2015. Yeah, well, yeah. yeah, oh yeah, the the nuclear stuff too, where where it doesn't collagen turnover essentially is minimal yeah. after age 17. But um, the the author's last name B O H M did a a review in 2015 of oh. Of, yeah. The oh, bomb, Sebastian bomb literature, bomb. Bo- Sebastian bomb. Yep. And so, yeah, okay. the, the I thought con- you meant the bomb. <laughs> no, well, that's that's part of the conversation. Is yeah. a tendon, on average, seems to stiffen with with progressive loading. Stiffening stiffening is a mechanical property, but what also tends to change is the elastic or is the material property of the modulus. But I've seen yeah. a couple one-off studies, and I and they're after bomb, after the bomb review came out showing that eccentric loading caused a decrease in tendon stiffness. However, these are so one-off studies of only eccentric loading. We don't know where they were necessarily starting from compared to the general population and the and the the windows of time are like 4 weeks. So in my mind I'm I'm thinking is there kind of like a an adaptation where if you if you are subjecting the, t- the connective tissue to constant stretch on st- you know strain but in a stretch position, is there some material st- stretching that occurs initially, but then it, there's like kind of this upswing of stiffness that occurs if you were to continue with the loading program over time, something like that. What was it a Blazevich study? I need to I'll, I'll need to look. Uh, I'll, I'll, I'll shoot it to you. It, um, so there is a Kubo study. There so is he a, always shows stiffness increases. I'll, it, I'll, I'll, you're blowing Kubo, my mind. <laughs> I'll, I'll send it to you because Kubo, the one, yeah, the Kubo studies really that I'm thinking it. of are like 2001, 2004. Yeah, yeah. Um, and I'm not, the reason I'm not prepared for this is because I wasn't prepared to talk about this. Sorry, yeah, sorry, no, it's sorry. okay. <laughs> but I will send it, I'll send it to you yeah, yeah. and, and no, tell you I'm, because I was very comfortable with saying that very, just kind of easily that tendon stiffness increases with increased loading and then that, that. And I came across a couple studies that, that I wasn't as comfortable saying that. And I was kind the of the only person I know who say, who says that they don't, that they don't uh, increase the, doesn't increase stiffness is, uh, is Jeffrey Barrell's work out of Australia. And he, he cites a Blazevich paper, but if, when you talk to Anthony Blazevich about it, who's a sports science researcher out of Australia, he's like, no, it's the, it's the muscle stiffness that decreases. Like stretching will decrease muscle stiffness and sensory stiffness, but not tendon. That's what he says with the eccentric stuff. So there, there, that I would, I would go back to the, I, I want, yeah, I want to see that Quinn, if you can send it to me, but I, I would just wonder if it wasn't muscle or somewhere like maybe there's something right around where muscle transitions into tendon. And that might be where we can get a stiffness change, like to decrease or something. The only way I know how to decrease tendon stiffness is bed rest and injury. Yeah. I think I know what you're talking about. It's a patellar tendinopathy rehab program. They, they showed a decrease in stiffness. Uh, no, that that was uh, a heavy slow resistance. That's another one. 
These were on. Okay. These were healthy tendons. So yeah, that's, that's, an next, so that's oh, another one. So I don't know. So that's that was that's a weird one because you just load up a tendon when it's injured and and in the patella it gets less stiff. But that means once it gets healthier, at some point in time it has to get stiffer. But there was a Consgard article on the patella tendon as well using the same exact protocol and they found an increase in stiffness. So it's just this. Yeah. It's like it also comes down to what measuring measuring tools are you using, and uh, Scott Morrison brought this point to me is that all these studies have such small sample sizes. Is it, is it possible that we're just missing? We're so myopic in who we're looking at that we're just, we're missing any, any type of big pattern because maybe we are taking 12 people that happen to their tendons happen to decrease in stiffness when we look at this and then we're like, Oh shit. Yeah. But then the bomb article is just another configuration of studies with small sample sizes. So it's just because you have an average of, of, small studies doesn't necessarily mean that's generalizable either. I don't know. Um, but yeah, yeah. sure. I got you guys off topic. Okay. No, and and this good. is what I mean. You, you get into the weeds of biomechanics like this. And if you use stiffness as a surrogate or a guide to rehab, it's just silly. It's tough. You ju- you, that's why you should just say what attributes in you do we want to develop power, speed, strength, endurance, whatever it happens to be. Okay. That's what we'll do. What do you want to do? What are you having trouble doing? Okay. That's what we're going to do. Why do we even care about tendon stiffness? Right? Yeah. Well, the it's the same thing back to the spine. Why are we even worried about it then? We don't even how even know how it adapts to load, so we're freaking out about it. If it hurts, maybe don't do it. Okay. Like, do you know what I mean? It ends uh, up being that simple sometimes. A hundred percent. Like, fuck. Well, one of <laughs> your papers, no, one of your papers, I think, takes this into account really well. It's a viewpoint in JOSPT last year, and it's I got it in front of me here. It's the role of value of symptom modification approaches in musculoskeletal practice, and so. Yeah, it's it's kind of goes back to what you have talked about late or earlier was just find give them options, let them play around and see if if they can change something. Um, do that for a while, drive home the point of this may just be a temporary change, because sometimes that's a confusion point. Well, people think yes. if I'm I'm changing your movement, that needs to be permanent, and the previous movement was bad and was what caused this issue. Can you talk yeah. a little bit about that misconception and? And that paper in general is your, do you have a way to teach people how to symptom modify or give them like kind of a hierarchy of options? Yeah, I, I, I do like, so I, I break, this is sort of the idea that a lot of people do. I, the point of the paper was you have all, all these gurus and really well-respected people who um, have looked, it looks like they have very different ways to practice to help, help the same person. And I was like, what, you know, what are the common themes and the common theme that I think it's, they, they find someone who has, you find something that hurts and then you teach someone some way to control their symptoms so they can keep doing that movement. But then really you get them back to doing the things that they love and they want to do. And that's like the biggest common theme. And then what they disagree on is like the ideal way for people to move. You know, so I, in that paper, I compared Peter O'Sullivan's approach with someone who has low back pain and Stu McGill's approach where Peter, someone will come in, it hurts to flex. They're afraid to flex. They avoid flexion. They, when they go to bend over, they don't flex at all. So they're an avoidance coper and he teaches them relax, breathe through your belly. You know, you're safe to flex, slowly start doing it. And the person's like, oh, wow, I can flex. I feel fantastic. He doesn't say this is the right way to move and bend over. He say this is the right way for you right now. It's the George Costanza school of rehab. Whatever you're doing, do the opposite, and it comes out comes out golden. And then the other model is the classic spine stability model. And I, and I think these people are accidental. These people are endurance copers. They they might deadlift, train hard. They just do lots of flexion, and for whatever reason, they couldn't adapt to that. And so the flexion pattern was now painful. So you're like, oh, okay, you keep flexing your back and it hurts. Here, I'm going to teach you not to do that, <laughs> right? <laughs> but you're going to keep doing the thing that you love. So in that group, they they do try to do a more neutral spine. But but they both both schools of thought are, whatever you're doing, let's change that, get you to control your symptoms, and then keep doing the things that you love. That's it. Like, it's so it's so simple. <laughs> And then, sorry, you asked, like, what's what's the hierarchy of things that people can do? If you're a therapist, I say, like, just keep doing the stuff that you really feel comfortable with. Like, if you already put your hands on people, that's the thing. That'll be one of your symptom modifiers. But find the thing that hurts, modify with your hands, 
and then get, get people to, to do it again. If you're like a spine stability person and you like to do spine exercises and you know all that stuff, well, find the thing that someone has trouble, like say it's a hip adduction hurts. Well, take the bird dog, you know this one, Jared, we do this, I do this one all the time because that's what I do. Take the bird dog and now turn the bird dog not into a hip stability exercise, but an exposure exercise into hip adduction or spine flexion or extension, whatever it happens to be. Like I'm sensitive to spine extension years ago, but now I have to do it for gymnastics. So guess what I do with the bird dog? I extend the hell out of my spine. I try not to move from my hips. I move from my back. Yeah. <laughs> like, yeah. well, there's some trainer freaking out probably. He saw me <laughs> in the gym. They pulled the fire alarm and hose me down. <laughs> well, there's, there's a patient I was working with just recently. He's a firefighter and his, um, he's got some pretty, um, pronounced intolerance to uh, lumbar extension and hip extension on the one side. And it's been persistent for, oh gosh, 10 months or so. So nothing looked terrible, no red flags on assessment. <clears throat> so it was trying to start to expose him to some of that, but he was also pretty guarded um, when it came to the idea of doing some loaded things like deadlifting or that sort of stuff. So we just had him do some bridges and with a lot of spinal extension and I just cued him to do that and he felt fine. So I said, do as many as you want to. And he did a hundred and felt fine. So that was cool. And I also was cognizant of people walking by in the clinic and probably <laughs> for him, but there was a reason. Yeah. And can, if I can comment on that, the mm -hmm. clinical challenge there is like, you know, do you expose to get them to adapt or is it time to like avoid and settle down? And that, that, and that's where we all have trouble. I, I've done exposure-based stuff, and I'm like, shit, sorry. Well, we, sh yeah. we should be backing off. And, and then, the, Yeah, well, the follow-up to that same uh, circumstance was that he felt fine in the clinic, and then the next week we saw him, and he was like, I had to call into work the next day, and uh, I, I, couldn't, I couldn't do it. I'm like, oh, shit, okay. Well, yeah. and I just kind of talked him off the ledge because he didn't want to do anything after that point. I understood why. He did, this kind of guy doesn't miss work at all. And uh, so I told him, like, okay, yeah, sorry, that wasn't the intended consequence that gives us information. So we shot past that threshold. It was just this delayed onset. So we're not going to do that. <clears throat> we're going to do some other stuff that you feel okay with. And we're going to deliberately undershoot and make sure that you feel okay after the fact. Um, but yeah, to expose or protect is the million dollar question, isn't it? Mm. Yeah. I want to bring it back to um, talking to the students. Clint had brought this up before. So, would, what would you encourage students to do if they find themselves on placement working with an instructor who tends to adhere to a particular um, approach or tends to think that these these minutia or uh, you know these details that lie in the weeds of biomechanics matter a lot um, and you know say the student by by means of exposure to work that people like you are putting out is coming to realize that maybe it doesn't matter quite as much. <clears throat> um, and that the things that do matter aren't that specific um, as far as the, the, the small details of biomechanics. How would you encourage them to have that? Well, how would you encourage them, encourage them to conduct themselves in that situation? Let's, let's keep it to a, a clinical placement situation for now. Yeah. So when they roll their eyes, just make sure that they turn away from the instructor. Oh, sweet. Excellent. Uh, <laughs> no, I had to go through this because remember, I went back to school after... I did a master's after I was at chiropractic college, yeah, after I was in practice you, for years. You went through my, my program, my PT program. Yeah. Yeah. So it's, it's hard. Uh, yeah. But again, I would say like, you know, don't, you know, put that person, put the explanations on mute, but look, look at what that therapist does well and what the patients, uh, what the patients like and try to figure out why that, why those people are getting better rather than the explanation. And so you can still like, I can take courses from people that would probably really disagree with that, what I do, you know, but I can still learn a ton from them because I can take their skill set and put it into my framework with the principles that I think like it's, it's finding principles. Right. And then, and then, and then how we apply those principles, we still all can do better. Like I still need more skills and how I apply my principles. So I would do, if, if they can figure out, what they're, which is hard when you're young and you're learning what your mm -hmm. principles are. And then you can see that the therapist that you're supposed to be learning from, what, what can I take from them? What do they, what does he or she do well, do well? So mm -hmm. that, that would, that's the idea. For sure. It's and hard. then to, ex 
It is. Yeah. Um, and I've talked to a number of people who are on placement with an instructor who treats very differently from how the student wants to be treating or thinks that, that maybe things should be happening. Um, but you know, as the student, you, it is hard. You can't really disagree. You're, you're kind of, you have to, I think, go along with it to a certain extent, but let's expand on that a little bit and say the students now out of school, they're graduated and they're their own independent therapist. How might you encourage them to go about having conversations or, or if they should have these conversations about, you know, do these things actually matter the way that we think they do? Or are these, these other things that are much less complicated, really the important things? How could someone learn, learn that on their own or? or how how or should they have those conversations with their colleagues, uh, especially if there are differences in opinions or approaches? And if so, how should they go about uh, those conversations? They, they, they can't change their colleagues. Hmm. I've worked in plenty of clinics with friends of mine who practice differently and, you know, that we're not going to change them. But it's, again, you can look at the people who don't practice like you and still figure out what are they doing that's good. Yeah. So you, you can't, don't worry. I would, I would not take that, get on that mantle. You're not going to change your colleagues. No way. That's why the internet's like, like I felt so alone for so long. (laughs) Like I've been practicing like this for a long time and I, it was, it was different. And then like with the internet, I was like, Oh wow, there's people like me. (laughs) And now I think there's more. So it's getting easier. So Go on, go, go find your own echo chamber. (laughs) No, don't actually, you know what, if if I could give any advice to people like, and I do this a lot, uh, so maybe it's okay advice is like, when you think you know something, go try to disprove it, you know, like, so the adapt, I believe we can adapt, but so, you know, the past year I've been looking for research on what are the limits to adaptability, right? When should I protect more? Right. When should I back off? So yeah, like you try to disprove your idea, find, find those exceptions. And then that it'll, it'll still strengthen your principles. If you know the exceptions, yeah, never say something blindly. That's just stupid. <laughs> well, we talk about challenging biases a lot on this platform and something that we strive to do, um, quite a bit. And that leads to more well, often more of that feeling of uncertainty, but that's, it's probably a good thing because it leads to probably less saying stupid stuff blindly. Yeah, maybe, maybe. <laughs> so I just I like beating dead horses and I get obsessed with things. So I was looking up that while you guys were talking about echo chambers, uh, I was looking up tendon research and it was, yeah, yeah. So, so the, it was in the Achilles tendon where they found a decrease in stiffness after an eccentric program only. And it was Morrissey, Morrissey at all. I'll have to... I know. Okay. Thank, I'll email you about that. I know that paper. Okay, cool. Yeah. Yeah. Talk to Andrew Vygotsky about that. Got it. Uh, okay. It's an old, so, old paper. Yeah. yeah, yeah it's a 2011. Okay. Yeah. yeah. Cool. Cause <laughs> I want to be, un, I want to be unconfused. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. We have, it's an outlier and there, there, there might be a reason how, how they measure stuff. Okay. I was, well, I was going to say if, 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 if you're having a conversation with Andrew, then it's probably a methods thing. Yep. Okay. Sweet. Problem solved. <laughs> there you go. Nailed it. And now I just need you to do that for the cons guard. Where they did in the in the teletendinopathy literature in two thousand or paper in two thousand nine, where they did the heavy slow and they actually found a decrease in stiffness, increase in in function and, and pain tolerance, but decrease in stiffness. So I'll just need you to also dig into that a little bit more for me. Make sure that I'm not. Okay. That found that. It was more. It was a more recent one. I There's know a, that as a Pete, Pete Malaris paper, but he's only like the third or fourth author. Uh, Is he the author? There's a more recent one. Okay. Well, there's also a Consgarden one in two thousand nine. But they found decrease in stiffness in the patellar after the heavy resistance training. Yeah, yeah, because it, it's like what happens with patellar tendons. It's there's this paradox when you have a patellar tendinopathy, they become stiffer in people. That's what the degeneration does. When you have an Achilles tendinopathy, but they become less stiff. So the same. So it might depend on where, like the, the and then getting people back to recovery, that's what you're correcting would be the idea. I think some people have told me that it depends where the tendinosis is and it's different in a patellar tendon versus an Achilles. So this is paradox that, that patellar tendons become more stiff with degeneration and Achilles become less stiff, even though it's the same histological pathology where, where it is, it's the problem. Right. Yes. Yeah, so that's, that's the difference. It's because it's a, it's a disease tendon. Other than that, we don't know. 
And then does it change what we do knowing any no, of that? That's what's funny. So the same, that's why using stiffness as a metric is kind of silly. So like it, it doesn't quite, quite make sense. You're using a protocol to increase stiffness when, well, whatever it decreases. Do you find that using pain as a proxy of, of, or a measure of outcome is also gets a little hairy if, if the person's goal is pain-free? Do you find a problem with that? I want to be pain-free. I've had pain for five years now. I want to be pain-free. That's oh, my goal. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I'm not pain-free. Like I've had, and I, I, I'm never injured, but I have like some persistent pain, like forever that gets in the way of things. I think, I think that's a really bad message, and we mess people up by telling them that they should be pain-free. Mm-hmm. That doesn't mean, but but we should still be working, striving to decrease suffering and disability. I think that is where we can make the biggest impact. So when that when that pain is just ridiculously bothersome, that that's the goal. But having it zero or one all the time doesn't seem it seems unfair to a lot of people. But no doubt, some people can be pain free, but there's a massive subset who's going to have have something. Mm-hmm. Do you guys know anyone who trains hard or that's pain free everywhere all the time? <laughs> no, they're not training hard even, enough. They're not training hard enough. Training hard. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, yeah. We're not even training hard. Yeah, that's just, it's really not fair. I think we set, set people up. And when people teach courses and say, like, they heal everyone in one week or two weeks and all these things, these are the courses I used to take. Like, now you're just screwing young therapists because you make everyone feel like they suck just so they'll take level two. That's <laughs> true. And it's sad. Yeah, totally. <laughs> Greg, where can, what do you got coming up? Projects, uh, courses, papers? Um, you know, the, the course, I, I like d- d- uh, doing it. I'm, I'm trying to do it less because I want to see more patients again. We just moved like six kilometers, kind of the suburbs of Toronto, but not quite. So I have, there's a workshop and I turned it into a gym and a clinic. Nice. So I'm, 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 yeah. So that's what I've always wanted. It's like a clinic in my own house. Yeah. So there, that that's that. So I'm going to be doing a little less traveling and then trying to put the stuff uh, online, like a, a pain, uh, an exercise course just for pain and injuries, you know, that that sort of thing, you know, that complements the course and stuff like that. That's what I'm doing. I say that, but I've been saying that for a long time. <laughs> it's, it's It seems simple in principle, right? Oh, I'll just make a few videos. I'll just do the present. I'll just write it up, do the presentation. Oh. Yeah, no. Yeah. No, because no, you want to get the the structure. Things have to flow. There has to be a hierarchy, a framework. Yeah, that that's the hardest. But I think I have the framework now. It's, it's that took over a year. Get like a, a clinical reasoning protocol. That was the mm-hmm. other thing. It's not out there really for exercise. It's so driven by a find a dysfunction and correct it. Right. Here's how you increase range of motion. Oh, no shit. <laughs> Where can people connect with you? Depends what they want to say. <laughs> uh, you know, Twitter, Twitter to me is the best. I don't really like Facebook, not on Facebook that much. That's where the old people are. Uh, but, but Twitter, I have my best, you know, uh, conversations there. And I usually argue, I, I don't argue, like probably talk to people who are very similar to me, but we all still challenge each other because we're not certain about things. So I have a lot of discussions where, there's nothing like no one's throwing like I'm not I'm not throwing any flames anymore or anything like that. That's no fun. That that's just useless. But you want discussions with people who are genuine and are you know we all have the same clinical problems. So so Twitter's tw- Twitter's the best for that. Cool. But there's no shit storms anymore. I know. Those aren't nice. There's lots on Instagram. Oh, is that the? I just Instagram is just to track my tumbling progress. Which and tumbling is more than enough reason for people to follow yeah. you. That's the only way I use Instagram. It's like my diary. Yeah. <laughs> of keep, flipping. Keep it like that. It, Instagram is, it gives people the, it's not like Twitter because they have all the, all the characters to use, but it's also not like Facebook because they can't link anything. So they yeah. don't need, so they don't need to. It's just their, <laughs> their sounding board. Yeah. You know, so I put my vertical jump on there today. You guys ever use my jump? That app? I saw you posted about it, but I never used it. I just I just screen capped doing it because I, I, I wanted to tell people how easy it was to, to use. It's very <laughs> useful. I use it all the time in the clinic. 
it totally yeah. underestimates your real like if you were to run and jump up and grab the rim right like it, 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 yeah but much, it, like it's relative though so you know if as long as you're testing you can yeah. you can track progress you know or check track change as long as you're consistent with with your testing protocols that's what i'm using it for yeah cool there you go plug for my jump maybe we'll make them a, a <laughs> podcast sponsor there you go okay that was great <laughs> thanks it's so you. easy yeah greg first of all thank or uh, thanks for so so much for being on the show first of all yeah, second yeah, of all and third you. my pleasure <laughs> um jared do you have any parting thoughts nothing remotely profound this was fun thanks greg yeah oh yeah of course well, that was fun Greg, any any uh, parting tips for the young listeners? Just that one thing that's going to make them the best clinician they can possibly be. Uh, you know what? There's only yeah, one. Yeah, thing. this this is like super cheesy, but like, uh, uh, well, one care, but like, figure out what the patient really wants to do. Like, really, li- really listen, and like, really know what what they want. Like, what do they expect from you? It sounds silly, but I didn't ask that question for a long time. Like, what do you want from me? But like, <laughs> you know, like, but like, what do they really want? And then, and then, all right, well, we can do that. Say yes more than no. Because we tend to do what we want. We tell them to do what we want them to do or <laughs> what we, th- we think is right. Totally. I think I did that for five years. I just rubbed the shit out of everything. <laughs> Rub and crack. <laughs> yeah. I want everybody to do the snatch and clean and jerk. um awesome well great conversation thanks so much for that greg we'll uh try to link we'll link all your all your stuff in the show notes so people can connect there and and um and yeah thanks again guys thank you thank you